Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. Hi, I'm Paul Listick, and welcome to Behind the Curtain. And welcome, everybody, to Behind the Curtain. This is WGN-TV's Paul Lisnick, and ordinarily you will see me talk politics on television. Usually it's other stuff on the podcast, but today we are going to go into the world of politics and social issues and more that gets wrapped up in that. My guest is the incredible author, he's incredible and he's an author, incredible author of the new book, Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker, and this uh, was a book that was many years in the process was Wildland. We talked about it on Political Report, and now we get to talk about it here. Evan Osnos joins me. Evan, good to talk to you again. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be with you. So, as I sort of mentioned, this book is a, a you know a process of many years. It's not that it took you millions of years to write, but it did take you many years to gather the experiences that you needed to write this book because it involved you living in various places. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, in some ways, this book is the product of, uh, I suppose, 44 years of of living and thinking about what it means to be American. Uh, and when I sat down about six years ago to really decide what was it that I could say about this moment that was just crying out for um, trying to use the tools of narrative nonfiction to, to, to try to kind of get my arms around the big story, which is how did our politics get so furious? I realized that in my biography, in my life, I had these places that I care a tremendous amount and are very, very different. And that I might be able to, by going deep into the history and the present and into individual lives in these what turned out to be three places, that that might actually bring this to life. And on my television show, by the way, which that clip is posted, people can catch it either on my social media or on the WGN website. Um, we talked about, because you know television, limited time, so we focused in on your years in Chicago. And I do consider you kind of a Chicago guy. Um, but as you mentioned, this was the product of living in not only in Chicago, but also Clarksburg, West Virginia, Greenwich, Connecticut. And before we get into all of that and the issues you bring up, my guess is that because prior to like coming back into the States, you lived in China for a, a period of time, although you don't, although this book is not about life in China and the problems there, that, that informed your view of how we live here and the problems we're having. Yeah, it, it did. I mean, in an important way, I was a Chicago Tribune correspondent um, when I was posted to China and lived there for eight years. And in those years of living in an authoritarian country, and I had lived also in Iraq and in Egypt and uh, working for the Tribune. And I had this experience, Paul, of, of often finding myself in conversation with people in these countries in which they were living under one form of tyranny or another. And I would, I would find myself almost kind of making a case for American democracy. I mean, in a subtle way, I don't know. It's just how you are as an American when you're talking about your own place. I would say to people, look, I know we're not perfect. We make mistakes, but give us the benefit of the doubt. We believe in things like the rule of law, and we believe in things like science and fact, and uh, you know we'll, we'll be we'll be right more often than we're wrong. And I came back to the U.S. and, and found that a lot of these these values that I'd been kind of evangelizing about were in doubt, 
and were under threat for various reasons. And so I, I realized I could go into these places that you mentioned, Chicago, Greenwich, Connecticut, and Clarksburg, West Virginia, and each one of them would reveal an element of how the uh, political community that we share has been frayed and pulled at the seams. And that was the, that was the moment of discovery. What's so really cool about this book and different about this book, because these days you write a book, it, it's got to be different. And and this story is told, I mean, it is a documentary, so to speak, of, of your life and these views, but you tell it through your interactions with other people. We sort of get the annotation of each of the points that you're making. And as we get into some of the specifics, though, I do want to ask you this chicken and the egg question, which is the yeah. places you lived, did those locations feed the story or did the story you have to tell sort of get fed? by the cities you happen to live in? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I, and as, you know, as a, as a journalist, you and I both think about how does, how do stories take shape in your mind? Because it is this chicken or the egg process. On some level, there has to be, you have to have a theory of the case. You have to go out and say, I think there might be a story in this place or in this house. Or if I knock on the door, there's a reason why I'm doing it. And that's a hunch. I mean, it should be, it should be intuition, and it, what it shouldn't be is a pre-cooked conclusion. Because if you show up and you say, I already know everything I need to know, and I'm just finding a person who, quote-unquote, is a type, you know what I mean, who fills in the blank, that's actually, right. that's very easy. It's very convenient. We sometimes do it in short form. I've, God knows I've done it, certainly, when I'm racing a deadline, and I know I need a, you know, in, in my newspaper days, especially when I knew I needed that anecdote for the lead. That, and I could, you could find people, and it's not a disservice to the facts. They represent a certain phenomenon. But this was trying to do something different, which is what the luxury of time and space allows, which is to say, if I don't go into my interview with this person, knowing what it is that I'm going to get out of it, if I actually just say, tell me your life, and help me understand how you've experienced the last 40 years of American politics from that conversation. You will lead me to the bigger kind of meta theories, the ideas, the conceptual fabric that then becomes the, the book itself. So it was that interplay between story and concept. And you have to leave yourself open to either one all the time. I think one of the things that got fed by your time overseas is that you write fairly early in the book that Americans are among the world's most restless people. What does that mean? I mean, in in both literal terms and then sociological terms, the literal fact is that we move a lot. I mean, historically, Americans are some of the most peripatetic people on the planet. I mean, we get up about one fifth of us every year in the 1950s would move to the suburbs, let's say, in search of a bigger house or, you know, going out to find the spouse or a better job in another city. And if you look at rankings, we were always at the top of that list. And what's amazing, this is one of those statistics that, you know, is not the kind of thing we see on the front page of the newspaper, but is a huge blinking light about what's happening in our politics. We've actually ground to a halt We've stopped moving. I mean, it really, the, the numbers became quite dramatic over the last 10 years to the point that now Americans are, in a sense, the most immobilized we have been since the U.S. Census Bureau started measuring this. Uh, it's been cut in half since the 50s. And there's reasons for it that point to these larger things. For instance, the financial crisis left a lot of people underwater in their mortgages. 
they weren't able to move. So that was a big kind of long period of, of paralysis. And then the things like the holes in our elder care system or our child care system, which make it very hard for people to move far away from grandparents because they don't have um, institutions they can tune to in order to get help. All of these things are kind of holding us in place and are actually uh, taking us away from the story we tell ourselves about what it means to be American, which is that we get up and go and we can always find opportunity and seize it. And of course, everything gets shaped these days through the power of social media. And you write in the book about a woman named Vicki Smith. She was a reporter in West Virginia. And I think it's her you're quoting, but, but where she talks about the effect of social media in the news is unnerving. And I'm guessing you find it that way, too. Yeah, I was really taken with how she experienced it. She's a brilliant reporter who worked at the Associated Press in West Virginia. And what she discovered over the course of a number of years was that the as the pressure on the news business increased because there you know obviously more competition from social media uh less advertising all of the kinds of reasons that i think people have have begun to 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 know that it was actually changing the kinds of stories that she could pursue and be assigned so as an example she would get instructions from the home office where they would say hey can you chase down this thing that's on twitter that looks kind of interesting you know some sort of obscure example of some story that was getting a lot of clicks and they were doing it for you know not for malicious reasons her editors were saying look if you get this story and you write it up this will get us a lot of attention maybe get us a little more revenue and we'll live to fight another day and so on but the effect over time was really distorting because and i think this applies to a lot of parts of the media you know all of us have felt this to some degree that those pressures end up changing what it is that the portrait of our country looks like to people because on every little micro decision we make about which stories we pursue which ones we amplify which ones get travel on the internet it ends up looking it ends up looking more and more like a kind of carnival vaudeville show of american life rather than a a description of what really matters we we're not talking about the kind of underlying policy questions that really would impact people's livelihoods and their quality of life even their life expectancy instead what we're talking about is some zippy thing that's going to move around a lot on 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 twitter and that's not helpful yeah. And, you know, listen, we have listeners for this show all over the country and, and maybe the world for all I know. But uh, obviously, WGN is very Chicago centric. So let's talk a little Chicago if we can for a little bit, because one of my yeah. favorite parts of the book is your discussion of Barack Obama. And what I love about it is we all read about your writing of Barack Obama now. Right. Twenty twenty one. Let's hear about Barack Obama. That's not when you met him. And I have to, by the way, quickly tell you, I the first time I think I met Obama or maybe what I was with, I was at a party. It was before he was Barack Obama and he was standing alone. Nobody was talking to him. And I went up to him because I felt bad for him. And I went, oh, hey, how you doing? You know, <laughs> and in many ways, you had the interview of all interviews and you didn't think much of that either, apparently, when you interviewed him. <laughs> Oh, man, that is one of those moments from my uh, journalism will take you into the moments that you could not invent in a screenplay. I mean, I was a baby reporter when I got to the Tribune and here it was 1999 and I was on the Metro desk and my editors called me over and they said, hey, we're going to assign you to this political race because it's so lopsided. And this challenger is really not worth 
the time <laughs> of a serious political reporter. Uh, so why don't you just go out and interview him and write it up? And his name is Barack Obama. And so I, I, I called him up, and he was at that point a law professor, of course, a state senator. And uh, he said, sure, come on over and you know, we'll have a cup of tea. I remember very distinctly. And we, we went and we and, met in Hyde Park. And by the office. way, the race you're talking about was when he challenged Congressman Bobby Rush, who is still in office. Right. Um, and that's exactly. the one race in Obama's life that he lost. But go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I mean, you're right. And you're right to say it. I sort of it's so much second nature by now of my own thinking about that period of my life. It's worth I have to sort of remind people there was a time when Obama was a political loser. I mean, he got trounced in that race and he wrote about it. And, you know, to his credit, I've talked to him. I've interviewed him on a few occasions since then over the years uh, when he was doing a little better. And I suppose I was doing a little better. You know, I should I should admit the embarrassing fact that I taped over my my if interview with him in 1999, as I write in the book, because uh, I wanted to, you know, save 2.99 on the little plastic audio tape. So <laughs> I, hope it, well, I hope it was for days. somebody worth. Was it somebody worthwhile that went over that tape? I don't know. <laughs> it was Donnie Trotter, actually. I can tell you. Oh, I mean, was it, it really? Uh, we're into, <laughs> it was. We're getting into the weeds of Chicago politics, but uh, there we are. And you know, so I his bow. I, I guess uh, his bow tie, like my bow tie, got to you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I held on to that tape, but not the Obama tape. There we are. It shows my judgment. But you know what's interesting about it, Paul, looking back on it now, is that there was something about Obama, even then. This was five years before the Democratic National Convention speech that really sort of made him. But anybody who met him then, and you sensed this probably even in your encounter with him on that sort of solitary evening when nobody quite knew what to say to him, was there was something about the guy. I mean, there was this. He had this. He had the thing that we all recognize in politics, but he hadn't mastered it yet. And it took him a while yet before he had figured out how to really deploy it to, to full effect. And I think that's what's so amazing about these early interviews and even just going with the recollections that you have, because that, that's right. That's not an Obama that most people know. And to have these memories of him before he became that Barack Obama is really important to how he got to where he is. He came yeah. to Chicago, obviously, oh, yeah. and, and, and he lived in a city where, you know, when people think of Chicago, they think of, you know, the power and the dailies and, and all of that. And you write in the book about uh, if you really want to understand the power of Chicago, the inequities, the problems, you don't look at the daily dynasty or Rom. You look at the gangster disciples. Now, I know you're going to talk mm. about that, but let me ask you, does this get triggered by what happened to great grandfather Albert Shearer at U of C back mm. on April 23rd of 1905? Well, you're 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 nice to remember him. I mentioned, of course, him in the book. My great grandfather, uh, you know, was you know he grew up in uh, grew up on the South Side, and he was walking down the street, and uh, and he got shot one night, and and he he got shot again, and he almost died, and and I'm kind of just because of the quirks of history. My grandfather, eventually, when my great-grandfather died, they, they, the surgeons had taken these bullets from him. And, they, and my grandfather didn't know what to do with these bullets. And he sent them to the University of Chicago, where my great-grandfather had been a student. And they put them in the archives. And they just kind of sat mm. there all these years. And then I, I kind of came upon them a few years ago when I was trying to understand a little more about my, my family history on the South Side. And I kind of held these things strange objects in my hand. And I realized they were kind of the opening of a, a level of understanding for me about, about the interaction between life and death and what it, which is such a big part. Let's be honest. It's a huge part of what power is and what politics is. And it has always been uh, in Chicago, 
there is a way in which, um, you know, politics, you know, it ain't it ain't beanbag. I mean, this is serious business. It's about who has power to promote their community, their people uh, to prevent other people from gaining power. And, you know, as you mentioned, I write about the gangster disciples in the book, which is a curious way of an oblique way of getting at politics. But the reason I did was there's this amazing bit of history, which is that the head of the gangster disciples at one point read the biography of old man Daly, Richard J. Daly, written by Mike Royko, this brilliant book, you know, boss, sure. which all of us have read who covered the classic thing. It's the classic. And, and he learned from it. He said, look, if we ever, if we, my street gang want to have power, we're going to have to figure out how to get a hand in politics. And for a while, it's kind of one of those amazing little mini chapters of history. They actually ran a political action committee uh, called growth and development. The name was, was, was obviously a play on the initials for the gangster disciples. But what's fascinating about it was that he sensed that there was this other route to power and um, it was a failure in the end, but it was a, it was a way of capturing how these things are always kind of in dialogue with one another, power, violence, safety, security, who gets the right to, uh, who gets the right to define their own, their own community. So that runs very much through politics, even today in the city. And follow it through kind of to a modern day incident, because I want to talk a little bit about Rahm Emanuel and Laquan McDonald in 2015, uh, which is when Laquan McDonald happened. But you meet Rahm for breakfast in the book. You talk about it being at a West Loop restaurant on television. I asked you if you remember the restaurant. You didn't. I think I decided it was Lou Mitchell's. But I don't know if you have any news on that one since we talked last. <laughs> I should, I'll look it up. I got to go back. I, I'm sure I got the receipt somewhere. Did you get a box of milk duds when you walked in the front door? That's how you'd know. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I you, don't know. I don't. I, all right. I can't remember, but I'll go. So back. You, I'll you, find you, it for you, Paul. I really will. Yeah, oh, I, I'd love it. So you sit down. You 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 talk about Ram. You talk. You write in the book that Chicago politics were a moment of change at that time. But it's an interesting question now. Right. Even then, when we talked about it on television, because now, of course. He's been through his ambassador hearings, and Laquan McDonald comes up again. Progressives don't want him to be ambassador because of that. Um, and he kind of, I don't know, eats crow, is, 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 is apologetic yeah. for what happened. He should have yeah. done more. But when you were with him, you write on about the fact that he was defiant. Right, right. It's, such a, it's a really interesting comparison to think about how we talked about it then and how I just we, I saw it recently of course in his hearings you know when I saw him that day when we're sitting at, the, at that moment he was really in the teeth of the scandal I mean that's what it was it was the moment when uh, the tape had come out and the city people were asking why it was that it hadn't come out earlier and I think for Rom he has very, very strong, obviously, political antenna. He knows, he can sense when somebody is on the rise, when they're losing ground, when they're failing. And I, could, I sort of remember thinking, even a way he couldn't say openly at the time, it was still then at that point months before he announced he wasn't going to run for re-election. But I sensed that in his, he was, he was very Rom-like that day. He was kind of pushing back on my questions, trying to sort of put me off balance a bit. You would recognize the techniques. And, you know, if he was sitting here today, he would acknowledge probably that some of the moves. But part of the reason he was uneasy was he knew that um, he was losing his grip on, on, on the city. And people were losing faith in him. And that, that essentially his moment was passing. Um, Fast forward to today. It's really interesting to hear him in Congress the other day. He was more 
candid about acknowledging that he had misjudged, misunderstood, essentially failed to recognize the level of distrust that his administration and the police department were encountering, particularly in communities of color. But he was it's the kind of thing that he could only say now that the political stakes for him are over. Uh, But let's be honest here. One of the reasons he's saying it this way is the moment, you know, American politics has moved and he has to be more candid about his failures in that moment or he won't have a future as an ambassador. Yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. And by the way, I should know for Chicagoans listening to us, you write about people, Jamal Green. I mean, there's some well-known Chicago figures uh, who I've interviewed, who I talked to, and, I'm, and I get I was kind of surprised. I'm like, there they are. There they are in your book. I hope Jamal knows he's in there and, and bought several copies of it. Um, you also say that Chicago, well, one more question about the violence, because a lot of people think our guns are coming up from Indiana. They're coming from surrounding states. And you make it clear in the book that, that that's not the problem with the guns. Yeah, one of the really interesting discoveries in the if you begin to look into the data around around the patterns of gun ownership and and where they're moving in the United States is that we talk all the time about Wisconsin and Indiana, but actually that the state that is in particular the year I was I was describing the state that sent more guns out of state than any other was another place I'd lived, and that was West Virginia. So you had guns going all the way from West Virginia to Philly, to Albany, to Buffalo, to Chicago, and beyond. And the, it's known in the, in the, among federal agents as the Iron Pipeline uh, in places like the ATF. And what was really important about that discovery, uh, from my perspective, was that's a sign of something that's running just beneath the surface of the whole book, which is the way that places in different parts of the country are affecting each other all the time and don't even know it. And I think part of how you begin to kind of pick the Gordian knot of this political moment is by acknowledging the ways that we impact one another all the time. And gun trafficking is one of the examples. And you take us all through the Trump years, of course, um, throughout the book. And and one of the things I find interesting, you talk about Trump's decision to essentially embrace birtherism and and the racism that accompanies that. And it made me think about the fact that in this pendulum of a political cycle we go through all the time, to me, clearly Barack Obama was an answer, perhaps, to George W. Bush. If you didn't have Obama as president, uh, had it been John McCain in 2008, would we have had a Donald Trump? That's really an interesting counterfactual. And I think one would have to say probably not. We wouldn't have had it then because it's David Axelrod, another great Chicagoan who clued me in once to one of his theories of presidential politics. You know, he, of course, was uh, Obama's uh, chief strategist and uh, now at the University of Chicago. And David said to me a number of years ago, he said, you know, I found over the years in presidential politics that people vote for either the replica or the remedy of the man who came before. So George George H.W. Bush, for instance, was more or less the replica of Ronald Reagan. But Barack Obama was, to his supporters, the remedy for George W. Bush, somebody very different in every way. And you see that extended all the way up through the Trump phenomenon. Donald Trump was, to his supporters, the polar opposite of Barack Obama, in their mind, the remedy of Barack Obama. So I think that, you know, Trump generated, sort of brought to the surface a lot of these elements of our politics 
uh, in more acute form in response to the Obama years. But I think it's also true, Paul, that the things, and this gets to one of the ideas that I really came away with very distinctly, was that if it wasn't Trump in 2016, it would have been somebody else, maybe in 2020, maybe now. Uh, but somebody was eventually going to was going to strike that match and was going to pick up on a lot of these underlying elements, political in terms of our sense of losing confidence in institutions, our sense of estrangement from one another and from politics, and also the effects of income inequality. So Trump was a, a symptom of deeper diseases, and he was not, uh, in the end, um, the be-all, end-all. So if I can bring you beyond the book, because again, you, you, you do, these questions get raised by the book. It's why I ask you now. And, you know, you write about the sort of the war between what Obama brought out in people, the, the effort to fight racism and fight all of this. And then you have the battle with Trump, which is the return to white supremacy. So given where we are now, and I mean, listen, uh, you know, I'll be very surprised if Trump doesn't run, uh, depending on world events and things, but if he doesn't run in 2024, I'm, I'm bringing you beyond your book now, but is your sense that we're still in that world that Trump created and the majority of Americans, or at least the majority of electoral college are prepared to go back to that in a 2024. Cause clearly Biden is a response to Trump as well, but I don't think either of us right. thinks Biden runs in 2024. So I think we are bracing quite clearly for, uh, another Trump play. Um, I happen to be working on a piece in the New Yorker that's looking at that subject in some detail. And I think, you know, barring a health issue or a criminal justice issue, uh, Donald Trump will try to run again. The, the question is then, um, does he have the effect of galvanizing the divided Republican Party? Because let's remember, it's, it's divided too. Or is his dominant effect to galvanize the Democratic Party because he is almost a uniquely polarizing figure. And, you know, we think of Democrats these days as divided between the Bernie Sanders wing and the Joe Manchin wing. And you've got Joe Biden trying to balance all these different pieces of it. Um, but there is probably one person who can more effectively make Democrats agree with one another. And it's not Joe Biden. It's Donald Trump. So curiously enough, we're going to have to think about as we do the political prognostication, um, you know, does does Trump do more damage to his own party as a candidate than he does uh, that than he can bring in terms of benefits that we don't know yet. We got a long way to discover it. But I, I agree with you. I think uh, it, it sure looks at this moment like he's going to go. Yeah, and it's also fair to ask you Joe Biden questions because you're also the author of the book called Joe Biden, The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now. So you're certainly a Biden expert. And and I think, again, I think either I think you write this. It's a note to myself, but I think it was from you, um, that he's kind of the moderate balance to the presumed progressive Obama who wasn't so. And so I'm sort of curious, as you look at Joe Biden now, he's actually being far more progressive than people would have expected him to be, as Obama wasn't as progressive as people expected. Is Does that put Biden on the road to trouble? in the future, or is that the road to success? Well, in a way, he was responding to the very specific moment in which he arrived in the White House, when you had, because of COVID, because of the movement started by the killing of George Floyd, you had this much more acute appetite for progressive change, even among people who might never have called for it. So you know, it wasn't that every Democrat was clamoring for a $3.5 trillion 
uh, reconciliation bill. But you did have people saying, "Okay, the the covid pandemic has revealed to us the fragility of our public health system, the fact that we clearly need to invest in in the country in ways we have just sort of been on holiday from for a while. And he was responding to that. I mean, he said to me in the course of my interviews with Biden that he he said, look, I am and we've heard him talk about this publicly. He said, I'm inspired by FDR, not and this is the key point that I think often gets lost in the public conversation, not because he thinks of FDR as being a radical, but because he thought of FDR as being a pragmatist. He really thought of FDR as saying that the things that he undertook were simply necessary responses to the scale of a crisis. And I, you know, Biden, interestingly, is sort of a Rorschach test right now, because I think a lot of people would say, gosh, he's a lot more progressive or radical than we expected him to be. He'd been a kind of middle of the road backbencher senator for a long time. But then there are also progressives who say now he's a huge disappointment to us because we expected him to go to go whole hog on all these issues that he that he ran on. And the reality is, as he would tell you, politics is uh, is uh, in the end a process of negotiation and compromise. And you'll never end up with the maximalist position, either on one end or the other. And if I had to guess, Paul, I think probably he will um, he will end up being able to achieve more progressive aims, curiously enough, than a more avowedly progressive president would have, precisely because he's coming from a history of being in the middle. That gives him a little bit more time. People are willing to listen to him a little more who might otherwise write off um, somebody like a Bernie Sanders. And just one more take. And obviously Trump support. You write in the early part of the book of a woman named, I think it was Sandra, uh, right? The one who you, you, you didn't really know her, but she, she sees a Trump or she goes to a Trump rally and she becomes an avid Trump supporter. And, and right. so there is that Trump supporter thing. They're, they're, they're rabidly supportive of him and Biden supporters or Democratic supporters. They, they're just not that they sort of, they like him or, you know, whatever, but it's a, it's a very different kind of thing. And, and so I'm sort of curious because right now turn on any Fox news show. And I, like you, I watch all the political shows and on Fox news, He's everything from President Sippy Cup to, you know, he's sleeping. He doesn't know what's going on. He's lost his mind. You worked with him for a long time. Uh, and I'm asking you as a reporter, not as an analyst. But sure. in what you have seen in Joe Biden, is it fair enough to say that? Because what I hear is essentially remnants of the stutter we learn more about that he used to suffer from. Right. I hear that. And Fox News chooses to read it as a lot of negative stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I, have to, I can be very clear on this matter. I mean, I both as a reporter who's kind of interviewed him over the course of a number of years. So I kind of have this experience of benchmarking it a little bit because I'll say, okay, how was he in 2014? How was he in 2020? Uh, His level of kind of precision is the same, which is to say he was pretty meandering when he talked about things with me six years ago. And if you go back and listen to him a few years before that, it wasn't exactly uh, going you know, from point A to point B in the most direct route possible. I think you hear this really almost um, ridiculous contrast of caricatures sometimes today in on Fox News, where they'll say either he's in a state of cognitive decline or he is this masterful manipulator uh, who is running a a, a proto-fascistic regime. And I I find it, you know, look, that's politics and that's the way people will sometimes make a cartoon out of the out of the president. The reality is he is he's tired. He's working uh, pretty intensively. This has been a 
already uh, a pretty busy first nine months of the presidency. And, uh, you know, newsflash, he's he's not a young man. Um, but people who work very closely with him, who I've interviewed recently, will say, uh, you know, his more or less his opponent should be so lucky that the guy is in is in cognitive decline. That's not what's happening. He is sharp. He's he's working. That's what it is. Well, and you're the reporter to ask. And finally, you end the book with a story about a woman named Tanisha Barner who gets COVID. She's thinking of leaving her home in, you know, or, or, or Chicago. Uh, it was a great way to end the book because of Chicago, and it really kind of brought it home for me. But can you just talk a little bit about Tanisha and why you chose to kind of, in many ways, kind of wrap the book up with that story? Yeah, I, I found Tanisha Barner really kind of a thrilling person to interview over the years, get to know a bit. I, I was lucky uh, that she, she, she I, I obviously, I, I was talking to her, um, about her experience. She lived in Parkway Gardens and had lived there really her whole life. And she's a person who has just been incredibly unwilling to allow herself to get pushed around by circumstances that are beyond her control. It's Let's be honest, she lives in a very tough place to be a mom and to raise kids. I mean, we all remember there was a period of time when there was a lot of writing about what was known as O Block, which was the uh, block of the city that had um, more more shootings than anywhere else, right outside her front door. But the thing about Tanisha is she's raised two kids in Parkway, and she's been determined to do what she can to build a community. And she has, in many cases, succeeded. And I found it really I found it really encouraging, not just as somebody who cares about Chicago, but cares about the country, to try to bring her story into relief. And there's a moment when she contracts COVID earlier, uh, it was really at the beginning of, of this year, and what she discovered in that moment was that she was not alone, that in fact she had built over the years this community of people in her church, in her professional life, in her life outside of work who desperately were connected to her and cared about her and were coming to help her when she needed it. And it was, for me, a reminder of something, which is that all of us, ultimately, uh, it's on all of us to, to, in, to build our own communities and to sustain them and to fortify them, um, because it won't happen if we don't do it. And I think if I had to pick one lesson from this whole book that really stays with me, it's that the power of a community, a local culture, the people we feel most connected to is the thing that helps us at our moment of greatest fragility in this country. It's not this national political conversation where we tune on in the cable news. That's not going to help you when the chips are down. What's going to help you are the people that you've that you've kept close to you and the people that you've come to know. And uh, and Tanisha Barner helped me help me help me learn that. And I think it's why the book, I mean, it's so representative of what's in this book as you get these stories to make your points as you go through. And I have to say, finally, Evan, for me, the, the, the point of reading Wildland, The Making of America's Fury, which I hope all our listeners will do, it, you read it, you gain a lot of information and knowledge. But for me, and maybe it's because I do this for a living, but I find what's most useful is how it feeds me in my as future events happen and future things happen, I kind of take mm. your thoughts and your analysis and I apply it to tomorrow's events. And I, I hope that's something you intend people to do. Yeah, thanks for that. Well, I mean, I, I think what I try to do in a book is to figure out the ways in which the experiences that we've all been through individually and collectively, but really told through the stories of individuals. How do, that, how do those moments give us some blueprints 
that can help us interpret what's going to happen to us because stuff's going to come at us all the time and it's going to feel oftentimes like it's all new or it's overwhelming it's like well how are we going to deal with this new piece of technology which is you know fraying my nerves and is also fraying the nerves of our political culture and what i kind of came to was that there are there are patterns in our history and in our ways of dealing with one another that can demystify it a bit it's not actually a mystery if you lay it all down on the page you can begin to uh understand how we got here and i think a bit more about where we're going the book is Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. The author, The New Yorker's Evan Osnos. Evan, thank you for your time. When you're back in Chicago, I will take you to Lou Malnati's, and then we'll see what <laughs> – not Lou Malnati's. Well, I'll take you there, too, but I'll take you to Lou Mitchell's <laughs> for, for breakfast, and, uh, and then we'll get pizza at Lou Malnati's. We'll make it a day of Lou's. I'm looking forward to it, Paul. Thanks. I'm going to start fasting now in preparation for our feast. <laughs> I'll see you over there. You're going to have to. Evan Osnos, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Great book. I'll wait for the next one, and I look forward to your upcoming New Yorker articles. Thank you. Be well. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv. And hey, don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes. And tune in each week to hear more Insider Scoop coming to you from behind the curtain.